God is good all time. Some of y'all said it with conviction. Some of y'all are like, eh, I lost an hour of sleep, Pastor. Um, welcome to the first step of spring, I guess, and welcome to Harvest Hill. I'm Pastor Mike. Most of y'all know that. If not, uh, hello, and uh, hopefully we can catch each other before you get out of here this morning. Um, Jason mentioned we are in a series of Joshua. Oddly, we're not in the book of Joshua. Uh, we're actually going to be in the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. If you have your Bible with you, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 14 and read through verse 18. And the reason we're in 1 Peter, and we were in 1 Peter last week, and we were in the New Testament the week before that, uh, is in Joshua chapter 1, as Joshua is now the leader of Israel, taking the Israelites into the promise of God, the promised land. He gives them a command to prepare your provisions. And so what we've been doing is we've, we've kind of jumped off of that into the rest of the, the Bible. And what are some of the things that we as God's people need to be preparing as we move into the promises of God, as we move to where God wants us to be, that we might bring Him glory in this world. And so uh, we're going to be wrapping up this section of preparing this morning. Uh, again, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 14 here in a second. As we're going to be focused on preparing to make a defense. Um, some of y'all know this. Uh, if not, I'm going to let you know. I'm a graduate from Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar. I am a bearcat. Um, I don't know what a bearcat noise is, but... Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed my time there at, at SBU. I was blessed to have some incredible professors, um, some that are still there teaching, some that have retired, some that have moved on to other chapters in their life, uh, some that have passed on and have gone home uh, to the place that they were so passionate to teach about and to talk about and to live out. Uh, but one of those professors that really impacted me was... Uh, the man by the name of Dr. Cochran, and um, I have to say Cochran, because uh, Dr. Cochran was from the northeast of America, and so he, he had this really strong eastern accent, which made him sound almost Scottish for some reason, and if you ever met him, which you, you won't be able to until you see our Lord and Savior face to face, but um, you would swear he was the Christian version of Sean Connery. Because uh, he had the haircut and he had the accent. If you're familiar with Sean Connery, old you know James Bond, and he did other stuff as well. But and so when he taught, he would just captivate you. I don't know if you're like me, but whenever I'm like at a seminar or a conference or hearing a preacher and they've got an accent, for some reason I just all automatically give them a little more respect. So I'm sorry you stuck with me. Um, but Dr. Cochran just he was one of those guys that made a huge impact in my life. He was not only uh, one of my teachers, he was my advisor. Um, he was a guy I went to several times. A, a cool aspect was that he was also the teacher and advisor to my dad when my dad went to SBU. And so we had this strange connection. So I would just drop into his office sometimes and just talk with him. And, and we'd talk about my dad and he'd want to get caught up and, and all those things. So it was really, really cool. But he was the, the head of the philosophy department at SBU. And, um, and so I only had to take one class with Dr. Cochran, and that was the introduction to philosophy, but because I enjoyed him so much and just enjoyed learning from him, I actually took two more classes just as electives, just to sit under his teaching and just to 
hear what he had to say, but one thing Dr. Cochran did in my life is impact my life in the world of questions, uh, which is philosophy uh, almost through and through. And just the asking of questions and seeking out knowledge and whys and hows and whens and whats and, and what impact does this make and all that. And one of Dr. Cochran's favorite questions was the question of why. Um, I can remember the first time I got into his class and the introduction of philosophy class and he welcomed us like all professors would, gave out the syllabus, which if when you get to college you kind of realize that first day of class is syllabus day, so it's really kind of a boring day, but as we were going through the syllabus and looking at it, he began by saying, welcome, glad you're here, but I have a question for you and I'm not even going to try to imitate it because I'll just butcher his, his accent, but you know, his question was, how do you know you're actually here? What? How do you know where you're sitting, you're actually sitting? How do you know that this isn't some dream reality because you've had dreams that seem so real? How do you know that isn't what's going on right now? I was in. Philosophy, let's do this. And so as we went through class, we talked about all these different things of philosophy and, and different types of theories and stuff like that. One thing I really enjoyed about it is when you ask the question in Dr. Cochran's class, you better have known why you're asking the question because when you ask the question, his response was always, why? Why do you want to know that? What's your rationale for asking this question? Are you just trying to fill up space? Are you trying to, uh, to get me off subject? What, why do you want to get to this answer? Matter of fact, why was his favorite question that throughout his time of teaching, my dad uh, let me know this, that every final at the end of his class, the very last question was, why? One question, why? No, no, no other background to it, just why? And so there would be some students that would answer it, why not? Or because. And they would get full credit. And then there were some people, which you all have been blessed with, that just can rattle off stuff for pages and pages, so you're welcome. And they would get the exact same points as the why or why not. And so what Cochran wanted us to do is become critical thinkers, to be able to see the world and perceive the world, and, and, and more importantly, to look at the Word of God as a critical thinker, not just gaining knowledge, but to actually think, how does this relate to me? And this is what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be seeking out not only the why, but the how. And so here's the question, the main question we're going to deal with. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe what you believe? And then how do you let other people know what you believe? We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 14. And we'll walk through these questions this morning and why it's important. The Word of the Lord says, But even if you should suffer for unrighteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. I don't know if you ever stop to ask that question. Why? Why do I believe what I believe? Well, according to the Bible right here in 1 Peter, we need to be seeking after that answer. Why do I believe what I believe? Because we are commanded to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Why do I believe what I believe? And once I understand why I believe what I believe, how do I then share it? Verse 18 should give us the why we believe in Jesus Christ. He suffered once for sins. Some, some versions say once and for all for sins. The righteous, which was Him, for the unrighteous, which is us, that He, being Jesus, might bring us, the unrighteous, to a holy God, He was put to death in the flesh, but He was made alive in the Spirit. And so we live in a world now that wants to know why we believe what we believe, why we do what we do, why you even gathered here on a Sunday morning when a lot of the world today is struggling to recoup that hour they lost as we changed our clocks. Why are you here? What is this hope that is in you? And so these questions are the world... That, that, that we enter into the world of what is known as apologetics. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, is one of the key passages in the Christian apologetics. And what apologetics means is that we are to give in a defense. It is not like an apology. We are not apologizing to the world for the why we believe. We're not apologizing to the world to why we act the way we do. But we're given a defense for what we do and what motivates to do that. Douglas Gruthius defines Christian apologetics as the rational defense of the Christian worldview as objectively true, rationally compelling, and existentially, subjectively engaging. It just made me sound smart, so I'm going to read that one. It was really good. Um, the point is that we defend our faith to show that our faith has convictions and a rationale before a religiously curious world. The world that is yet to confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is religiously curious. Because in each and every individual, whether they know Christ or not, has been given this desire to worship something. Everyone you know will worship something. The atheist, the agnostic, will worship something. The unbeliever worships something. And so we all have some sort of religion. We're all curious about the meaning of life and the why of life and what is the point of life. And so as a Christian, we are to give a defense of the hope that is in us. I like this definition because it's a little simpler. Apologetics is the attempt to defend a particular belief or system of beliefs against objections. That's what we do. Peter is writing to a group of believers who have endured persecution. They have endured suffering. They're now living in a world in which they are refugees. 
They have been pushed out from where they live, and his instruction to them is to remember the cost to which had been paid in full by Jesus Christ and to live out that cost, being prepared for action, which we talked about last week, and now being prepared to defend what you believe to a world that is going to be watching the way you live and the way you act. And so we are called here today to defend our beliefs to a world that is watching by sharing why we believe what we believe. And Peter gives us the how, which I believe is important. Once we understand why I believe, well, I want to be saved. I want, I want eternal security. I want to know I'm going to heaven, not hell. And it's only through Jesus Christ. So that's, that's one reason why I believe. Peter gives us a how. But some of us haven't spent time asking, why do I believe? And I think that's important. Because that's what the devil tries to come into question. For some of us here, you can, you can relate with me. One reason I believed because that's the way I was raised. How many of y'all could say that? I was, I was just raised this way. I grew up in a Christian home. I, I, my parents took me to church. Um, and I was at, you know, all these different things going on. So, you know, Christianity, church, the Bible has always been some part of my life in one way or another. I've just always known it. Some of us, though, we didn't grow up that way. We didn't grow up with the, the family roots in Christianity, but we've had experiences. You've experienced, you've witnessed the evidence of God in your life or the evidence of God in someone else's life that sparked this curiosity to worship and curiosity religion that moved you to a place of faith where you accepted Jesus Christ as your own Savior and your salvation. And so that may be you today. You didn't grow up in it, but you've experienced, you witnessed some of y'all are here today, and what brought you to faith was you had a logical approach. You examined it. You examined the Bible. You examined the church. You examined Christianity. And you came to this conclusion, well, you didn't. The Spirit drew you to the conclusion, but that the world is best viewed through the lens of faith. And it's best viewed through the lens of God. It gives you a deeper understanding if you want to dive more into apologetics, uh, just give you some, some quick resources. Lee Strobel has a whole series, The Case 4. You almost fill in the blank because he's got several of those books. Um, but they're easy to read. And when it comes to apologetics and understanding the why, the rationale, there's some principles we can understand when we go out into the world, but they're not necessarily the guidelines that Scripture gives us. Some of the rationales to apologetics and defending our faith is the first one is that truth exists. What that means when I say truth exists, I'm saying there are things that are true and there are things that are false. Would you agree with that? Okay. As a believer, what I believe and what we should believe as believers is that there are things that are absolutely true. And absolute truth means there are things that are true for all people in all places at all times. And that absolute truth is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so our faith is in that. But when you go out into the world, one way of defending your faith is understanding that all people have an understanding of truth. We all understand some things are true and some things are false. And so where do we get that understanding? Because there must be one absolute truth, and we know that it's Jesus Christ. Another principle of apologetics is that God exists. This idea is that is broken down into three different theories. One is the cosmological theory, which states that all things that exist 
must have an origin of existence. So something doesn't come from nothing. That's actually a scientific theory as well. All things that exist must have an origin of existence. And so we can enter into conversations apologetically in defending our faith. Well, how did this come about being? How did this come around? Because one thing we believe in is that things didn't just bang and then exist. Because here's the, if we lived in a world where things could big bang into existence, this would be a very dangerous world. You thought the wind was bad yesterday. I mean, you can imagine driving down the interstate and then bang! Oh! We don't believe that. We believe everything must come from something. That's teleological. And then there are the, that's the, sorry, the cosmological. And there's the moral theory. That every individual we run into has a definition of right and wrong. Every individual, whether they rely upon it, has a moral thermometer or a moral compass that they believe some things are right to do and some things are wrong to do. And the things that are wrong to do, if you do those, you want to do those so other people don't find out about those. And every individual has that, and their compass works in different registers, but no matter where they live on this planet, they have a moral compass. And we understand it through the lens of the Word of God that since we're all made in the image and likeness of God, it's God who gave us that moral compass. So we can use that as an avenue to defend our faith. The other way is the teleological theory, which is the, the basis for intelligent design. Even though the world may say, well, Christianity and science, they don't, they don't collide. They actually oppose one another. The reality is that science reveals and relies upon the universal complexities of the human body and the universe all working harmoniously. And so what that means is that all things, no matter how diverse, no matter how complex, has, has some sort of origin in intelligent design because it all works together no matter how diverse it is. And science will hold to that as well. We also state that, well, miracles are possible. Anybody have a time in their life where something happened where you just could not explain why that happened the way it did? I can't believe that. You ever said that? So, and, and whether you are a Christian or not, People have had those moments. I can't believe that happened. And so we believe as a people that there are things beyond explanation which the Bible defines as miracles. We also go from, which this is what the world kind of wrestles with, is that we believe the Bible is historically reliable. That the things written in here come from the mouth of God, and despite the attacks upon the Bible, it has never been disproven on its historical and reliability throughout history. I mentioned Lee Strobel, who has his book, The Case for and Faith, Christ, Genesis, or Creation, Easter. C.S. Lewis, you may have heard that name before, was actually an individual who sought to disprove Christianity by examining the Scriptures and testing with the historical evidence we have. And you guess what happened to C.S. Lewis? He came to find the Bible to be reliable, and he professed his faith in Jesus Christ, and hence we have stories like the Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity and the Great Divorce. And if you don't know what those are, then go to your local library. The final evidence, and I believe the most important, is the evidence of the resurrected Savior in your life and in my life. It's the evidence that there have been millions of people throughout history that have been changed, some who have died for the faith, including those who originally wrote the, the New Testament. And if it were a lie, 
They could have denied it, confessed it to be a lie, and had their life spared, and yet they end up dying for their faith. And the evidence of that is, as we gather here today, is that we all believe, or at least hope, that there's a resurrected Savior. And we could take all these things, and we could write it down, and we could pack it in our little backpack of ammunition as we go out into the world and say, you know, this is how I'm going to defend the faith. I'm going to get into a conversation at the gas station, at the restaurant this afternoon, at the grocery store, and I'm just going to boom, 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 boom. But that's not what the Bible says to do. That's what Christians seem to do a lot of times. We go to conferences, we go to seminars, we watch videos online, and we hear some riveting preacher, riveting conference speaker, and what we do is we just start packing it away. We get a little more ammunition. We think, oh, I'm going to use this on so-and-so, and I'm going to put so-and-so in their place now because now i got that stuff that I need. And so we use Christianity like it's a video game today. A very popular video game today is Fortnite. And what Fortnite does is, is you begin to upgrade your character. You get weapons and gear and stuff like that so you can do better and you can kill more people quicker, I guess. But we do that with Christianity. It's we hear new stuff that we can put somebody in their place, and so we start stockpiling our Christian ammunition, and then we go to those people and we unload on them like we are the, the judgment of heaven upon them, and we wonder why we push them away. And that's not what the Bible says to do, but that's what we're so tempted to do with knowledge and understanding and be able to have an argument. But Peter here says, you know, the first thing you need to do in defending what you've placed your hope in, in defending your relationship with Jesus Christ, in defending why you do what you do, the first thing you need to do is you need to defend with your relationship with God. The Bible says the starting point begins, look there in verse 15, in your hearts. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I mean, I may have all this cool information, I may have all this cool stuff and these cool arguments that can win debates, but the reality is it has to begin in my heart. I can't defend what I believe in until my heart is right with God. The beauty of Christianity and the beauty of this is that we have a relationship with the God who created the heavens and the earth. And when you read from Genesis to Revelation, you see this is the theme. There is an almighty God pursuing after you for a personal relationship. And that relationship begins in my heart. Yes, the Bible says we are to have knowledge. We are to gain deeper understanding. We are to engage in discipleship. But all these things aren't to rattle off information. All these things are meant to impact our heart because it's our heart that impacts our actions and impacts our words, hence giving us the ability to love God and love people. I found the best approach before I get in a serious conversation about Christianity or, or my understanding of Scripture's is I have to get serious about my relationship with Christ. And one way that helps me do that, and which I was doing before I even came up here, is to remember where I was before I met Christ or returned to Christ. Prayer of the Bible says, Return to me the joy of my salvation, or the joy of your salvation. 
before I can really answer why do I believe what I believe, I need to answer this question, which I believe is more significant. How am I different since I've believed? How have I changed? How has my relationship with God changed me? How has the gospel changed me? And I think that's something we as believers need to sit down and ponder. Has the gospel changed me? Has it, as the Bible says, transformed me? Has it sanctified me, set me apart? Has it made me an alien, a sojourner, an exile in this world? Has it really impacted me? Because if I can't answer how it's done that, then the question is, do I really believe it? Do I really believe it has changing power? How am I different? I love about Christianity, and this is something I didn't come into a revelation until I was about 19 years of age. Christianity is not about your church attendance. And that's, that's scary for me to say as a pastor, because guess what? I want you here. <laughs> I feel a lot more confident for some reason, and maybe my sinful self, but I feel a lot more confident I'm preaching to a, a room that's a little more fuller than more fuller, yeah, more full than a room of 20 people that can host 100 or so. So I want you here. God wants you here. But your Christianity, your faith, and why you believe what you believe isn't for your church membership or your church attendance. That's not going to be what God asks you when He sees you. Which church did you go to? What denomination were you a part of? Where was your seat? Did I know you? Did you know me? See, God is about a relationship with you. And the thing about relationships that we all are aware of is that relationships change us. Think about the relationships you have right now, whether it's with a spouse or your child or with a, a co-worker or superior, your relationship changes you. It changes your perspective. For us men, let's just say amen to this. Our relationship with our wives has changed some of the things we do. Amen? Don't worry. Wives, you're thinking, oh man, you still got time. We're still a work in progress, all right? We're slow. We get that. But it changes us change our actions, it changes our words. If relationships didn't change us, then here in a couple months when our seniors give their speeches and give their testimonies, they wouldn't share about teachers that have impacted them. They wouldn't share about parents that have impacted them. They wouldn't share about coaches and mentors and adults that God has placed in their life that has impacted them. We wouldn't tell stories. I wouldn't have told a story about a man named Dr. Cochran that has impacted us if relationships didn't impact us. And here's the thing. God died for you and rose again so that you could have restored relationship with Him because He wants to change you through that relationship. It's not about what you and I can do. It's what He has done. And so I fall more in love with Him, and in that loving relationship I have with Him, He changes me to be more like Him, so that the evidence of the hope that I have in me is flowing out of me so the world can see it. 
I think the reason we fail so much and struggle so much in sharing our faith is because we fail so much to honor Christ personally in our hearts. The word honor there in verse 15, in your hearts honor Christ, meaning in your hearts worship Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts acknowledge Christ the Lord as holy. See, Christianity isn't about an agenda. It's not about a political platform. It's not about what church or denomination you associate yourself with. Christianity is about my heart worshiping, acknowledging, honor God, Jesus Christ, as holy, holy, holy. And until my heart does that, until my heart is totally infatuated with His love for me and I'm in love with Him and His holiness, I'm not going to be able to defend this hope that is in me. See, our evangelism, our defending faith, always begins with where am I with Christ? Because if I'm not, with God, not right with God, not right with Christ, there's no way I can defend it with gentleness and respect. There's no way I can defend it with a good conscience. But here's what the Bible says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, it says, For the love of Christ, or the love for Christ, controls us. Hear it again. The love of Christ, the love for Christ, controls us. goes on to say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So I defend why I believe and what I believe and how I believe first by making sure my heart is right with the one who saved me. Second thing the Bible says in defending our faith is I defend with my life. And though Christianity does call for some to be martyred for their faith, and that may happen to some in, the, in this room, I don't know. It's not necessarily what is being fully implied here. But the Bible says, be prepared to make a defense because the world is seeing my heart flowing out of me. The world is seeing a changed behavior. They see a good behavior in me, verse 16. And so I can defend my faith with gentleness and respect, verse 15. And I can do it with a good conscience, verse 16. Because I'm living differently. I'm acting differently. All because my heart is right with God. So by the way I'm living, I'm defending what I believe. That's what the Bible refers to as good works. Ephesians chapter 2, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We read through the letters of Paul, which is the majority of the New Testament. You see that Paul's cries wasn't that you would have deeper Bible studies about what he wrote. His cries wouldn't be that we would proclaim some of the words that he wrote. His cries weren't that we would, we would preach the words that he wrote. When you read through Paul's letters, this is what Paul says, imitate me as I imitate him. So imitate the way I'm living my life and how I'm treating people and how I'm showing respect to people and doing it with a good conscience and I have good behavior. Imitate that because we have to practice first before we preach. 
Jesus says in Matthew 7, 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. In James chapter 1, verse 22, it says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So here's the thing, and this is where we did it flipped. Before I dictate the word, I've got to digest the word. But we flip it. Because we're tempted to flip it. Oh, that's good. That's good. I've got to share that with so-and-so. I've got to preach that to so-and-so. And so we start preaching and preaching and preaching before we allow the world to fully, word to fully impact our heart and change us. And here's how this happens, because it happens to me. And this is my confession. It, I think it happens to all of us. But I'll confess openly about my own sin and shortcomings. I'll go to a conference. I'll go to a seminar. I'll hear an incredible pastor preach. And, and I've done this in my past. I'll oh, that'll preach. That'll preach. Oh, I've got to take that back to where I'm going because that'll preach because they need to hear this. And we do it at conferences. You may have done it here at church. Oh, I wish so-and-so was here. They really need to hear that message. This is exactly where they are. This is exactly what they're struggling with. This is exactly what they need to hear. Oh, I wish they were here. And so we start thinking about what God's Word wants to do in other people's lives. But here's the reality of the thing. God may not have brought them here. He has brought you here. To hear what He wants to say to you, not to someone else. Now, He may be able to use you and me through this message, but before I can deliver this message in the Word of God to someone else, I first have to stop and say, Okay, God, why are you wanting me to hear this right now? And what impact is this supposed to have on my heart? Because before I can defend it with words, I have to defend it with my heart and the way I am living in response to what you're proclaiming over me. But we can flip it. And that's the danger. We're called to be a light of the world, but before we can be the light of the world, we have to let the light shine in through the darkness of our own souls. So God didn't bring you here so you could preach to somebody else. God didn't send me to a conference so I can bring back a message someone else preached to me. Because we're on a relationship with God or wanting to know about, more about this relationship with God, God has brought us here for the sake of that relationship to change us, impacting our hearts to be more like His heart, more tuned to His heart. What is God wanting me? What is God wanting you to hear in this moment? Too often we can take the gospel and we can hear a message and we can use the information, the knowledge of the gospel as if it was something to prove ourselves. Oh, this is what I've learned. And, and we should share about what God is sharing in our life and teaching us. We should share that with believers. But the gospel isn't about us proving ourselves to be better than someone else. That's not what the gospel does. Here's what the gospel does. The gospel proves that you and I are sinners saved by grace that have no power, no intuition, and no authority on our own to remove our stain of sin. The gospel reveals that it is God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, and God's faithfulness to which I and everyone else can be saved. 
the gospel reveals that you and I are an unworthy, sinful mess. So I don't prove myself by my knowledge of the gospel. I prove myself by how I'm living in response to the gospel. How has the gospel changed me? How is it impacting me in this moment? Before I can get in a conversation about it, I have to make sure my, right, my heart is in the right place so that my actions are matching up to the things that I'm claiming to believe. It is then my heart is right and my life is right. It is then, the Bible says, I can defend with my words. Look there in verse 14 through 17. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, beginning with you, honor Christ the Lord as, your holy, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that you are, when you are slandered, because of the way you're living, those who revile your good behavior, the good works coming out of you that are found in Christ, they may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good than... If, if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. We flip this process, though. Instead of checking my heart and checking the way I'm living in response to the gospel, I want to preach it more. I want to preach more of the gospel, but it's not really my gospel. It's how I've defined the gospel. Until I've allowed the gospel to change me, I'm not ready to defend it, because I'm probably not living it. But look there in verse 15. It says, Always be prepared to make a defense, key phrase here, to anyone who asks you. Not to anyone you come across. Not to anyone you can shove it down their throat. But to anyone who asks you. And why would they ask you about the hope that is in you if they can't see it? This doesn't mean street evangelism is thrown out the window. This doesn't mean door-to-door -door evangelism or sharing your faith in, in awkward situations are thrown out the window. I believe you should be doing that. I believe we should be sharing our faith. I should we, believe we should be vocal about it. But Peter's speaking about people that are being placed throughout the world, and he's saying, first you need to check your heart, then you need to live according to the gospel that has saved you, so the people that are surrounding your life, the people that are going to get to know you the best, and are going to see you in your worst moment, they're going to see the way you respond to that because of the gospel, and they're going to say, why do you do what you do? How do you see that through that perspective? How do you still have a smile on your face after what you've gone through? How can you be okay with what the doctor just told you? How can you be all right now that you've lost your job or now that you're stuck in this situation? How in the world are you still acting like you have your sanity? This is what the world should be seeing in us because we're allowing the gospel to impact our hearts and impact our actions, that the world looks at us and they're just baffled. They're blown away and they're like, how are you doing that? There's something in you that is different. And so what happens is when 
The gospel impacts our hearts and our actions. You know what happens? The world comes to our doorstep. Because they can't understand why we do what we do. And they're asking us to defend it. And then when they do, we don't put ourselves on display. The final thing the Bible says is we defend with our Jesus. We worship Christ. We live out Christ. We share who we were before Christ. When we came to Christ. Why we came to Christ. How we came to Christ. How Christ has changed us. And this is our witness. This is our testimony. This is what the Bible calls us all to be. You are my witness. And so here's the challenge. Some of you all did spring break this week, mostly this section, but here's a challenge I want you to do. This week I want you to sit down with pen and paper and I want you to think about your testimony. Think, a good place to start is when did I come to Christ? That's always, that's kind of like the dot on the timeline, right? And who was I before that moment? And who am I after that moment? Why did I accept Christ? What brought me to that place? And it's going to be different for everybody. And, and here's the rebuttal I always get when I tell people to do this, because I've done it for the last 19 years in ministry. Well, I already know what I've done and how I did that and all that stuff. And, you know, I, I already got that story. But here's what I want you to do, because this is your greatest defense. I want you to sit down, think about it, put pen to paper, write it out. And think about how you want to word it to the people that are in your life that you want most to hear it. What stories would you want to use? What stories... Do you not really need to use? And the danger here is don't focus so much about who you were before you came to Christ, though that is important. But who are you now because you are in Christ? How has He changed you? It's not to put ourselves on display. It's not to say we've got it all perfect, we've got it all figured out. It's just so that we can be a witness to the transforming power of the gospel that is inside of us, this hope that is inside of us. And so when people come and ask you, why do you do that? How do you do that? I've got this already prepared out. I've prepared my defense already so I can now do it with gentleness and respect. Because I already know what I want to say. I already know what I want to preach. I already know what I want them to hear. When it comes to defending, we've got to understand this because this is where people fall off, and I've done this too. In defending our gospel, and defending the salvation we have, and defending Jesus Christ and, and He being our Savior, we are not defending God. Almighty God does not need a sinful individual to defend his heavenly kingdom. 
And I say that because sometimes you're going to start sharing about the gospel and sharing about Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life, and there are going to be people that are going to want to turn you off. And here's what you should do. Gently and respectively, turn off. The temptation, and this is... and. Because it's for the gospel, it's for Jesus, it's for the kingdom of God. But Satan knows that if he can get us to keep banging on their doors and keep pushing, because we'll have this temptation in our head, oh, we're so close. If I can just get to this one point, they'll come to Jesus, they'll be saved, all because I did it. That's, that's Satan. Because he's trying to tell you that you can do it. You and I can't do it. So I've got to learn to be able to turn it off because I'm not God's defender. He can take care of himself, right? I'm his witness. I get to testify what he has done in my life, what I've experienced. If you want an example of this, Acts 22 is a great example. You can read that in your own time, Apostle Paul. But this is my testimony. Why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? Let me tell you this. Being a pastor is not easy. Um, it's not. But being a Christian isn't either. And I, I, I grew up in a Christian home. So a lot of y'all can write this. My experience with Christianity was that I had family roots in it. It's what I always knew. I mean, my dad was a pastor, so when the church doors were open, guess where I was? Church. Every VBS, I was at church. Every church thing, whether I wanted to be there or not, I was there. And so I've always known Christianity, but there was at a point in time where it wasn't about a relationship. It was about me just kind of checking in and checking out. And so when I was in this age, and I'm not saying you all are doing this because some of you all are much more spiritually mature than I was at your age. But when I was in their age, we didn't sit in the front row. We sat in the back row, kind of where Darren is. Hey, Darren. <laughs> And, and I would just kind of go through the motions. I, I played church. And here's the reality you need to know, and you, you probably know this already, you can play church very easily. You can fool the, 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 the Jesus out of me if you want. I mean, you, you can't because he's there. But you can fool me all you want. You can fool the people next to you all you want. You can fool your spouse, your kids, all you want. But you're not going to fool the one who's going to judge you. So you can, you can play church all you want every single week. If you're fine with that, understanding that God is not looking for how well you did church. But that's what I did. Put it in this perspective, when, when Jason does the welcome and says shake hands, guess what I did? Shook hands. Passed the offering, I passed the offering. When the preacher preached, I did what are you supposed to do? I stared at the preacher. You can do all the things right and still did it wrong. But I didn't know that because it wasn't about a relationship. It was about me just being here. I get my righteousness check off the list for the day. And so because that's where it was, even though I had that background, what happened is, is I began wondering why. Why should I do that? It, you know, if it's just about what I do on Sunday morning, then that means Monday through Saturdays, that's Mike days. 
And so I started pursuing after, you know, I wanted, I wanted more friends. I wanted to be at the places people were talking about on Monday mornings. I wanted to be at the parties. And I got into all these situations, still showing up on church on Sunday, but doing all these other things during the week because my heart, where it begins, was not honoring Christ as holy. And about 19 years of age, I ended up in Gloria, New Mexico. The pastor that year was Louis Giglio, who is now like the head of the Passion Ministry. It wasn't Passion then. Matter of fact, I'd never even heard of Crowder or Chris Tomlin or anything like that. It was just this is a strange little guy named Louis that was speaking. It was the summer of 1999. I was sitting up in the balcony, as far back as you could get in a Southern Baptist conference. And I was sitting up there listening to this guy named Louis talk about Y2K. And some of y'all are like, Y2 what? you'll read about in the history books. That's, yeah, it's history now. So uh, Y2K, it was 1999, summer of 1999. Y2K was all the stir. The world was going to end. You know, January was going to flip the clock. Everything's going to crash. We're not going to know what to do because we've always had computers in our life and now we're all going to die. And, and he made this comment that just resonated with me because my fear wasn't in the right spot, but his, his comment was this. Everybody says the world's going to end in 2000, when the, when the clock strikes 2000. And it might. Jesus may come back. But according to the Bible, what he was saying is that there's a calling to always be ready and always be prepared. And only the Son knows, or only God knows when the hour is. And so, it's not going to be when it strikes 2000, but it's probably going to be like in June of 2000 or January of 2001 or five years from now. Of course, that was 19 years ago, but or 20. Point was, it's going to be when you get back into the rhythm and the routine of what you've been doing up to this moment. And what you've been doing up to this moment, the routines you've been keeping up to this moment, the practices you've had up to this moment, has that been honoring Christ? And I was about 225 at that point in time. I was mentioned over 500 plus pounds. I was a big old boy ready to knock somebody's block off on the football field. And God came up to me, and the best way I can describe it, with a wiffle ball bat and hit me over the back of the head. And I was on the ground, on my knees, in tears, like a little baby. Because I knew I'd accepted Christ when I was about five or six years old, but I was not living for Christ. I was not right with Him. Called my dad up. Let him know what happened. The next year, transferred to SBU. Met Dr. Cochran. Went on my first mission trip that next spring break. Saw the evidence of God. I was a college student with no money, and I wanted to go on this mission trip. Didn't have any money. For some reason, I got a tax refund, even though I only worked like, you know, part-time job, but it was enough money exactly to pay for me to go on this mission trip. To the T. Won the mission trip, and then on that mission trip, I got called to where I am today. Fought God tooth and nail about it. Told God, there's no way I'm going into ministry. No way. 
I made a wager. You ever wager with God? It's dangerous because he always wins. I told God, there's no way I'm going into the ministry. I've seen just the struggles my dad has had and what I've been able to pick up on, and there's no way I'm going to do that. I'm going to be a teacher and football coach. So I got back to school, just got off of spring break, told God, if you really want me to do this, I need time. I need to go talk with my dad. I need to go pray with my dad. I need to go figure this out. By Tuesday, 1 o'clock that next week, the week right after spring break, all my classes were canceled for the next week. Two spring breaks? No. (laughs) I knew exactly what the answer was. I still went home. Better cooking. Free laundry. And I've seen the evidence of God in my life. People being saved, not because anything I could do. People growing in a relationship with God, not because anything I can do. Not because my heart is always right with God. Not because I always get it right. Not because I don't stumble. But I say this to our younger ones, and I say this to our wiser ones. If this relationship with God was not real, with all the stuff I've been through, with all the stuff me and Jamie have been through in the ministry, I would have walked away a long time ago. But I know he reigns. And I know he puts up with a sinner like me. And I see how he's changed me. And he's still changing me. My wife just said amen in her head. (laughs) God loves you. And he loves you and me too much to leave us where we are. And he loves us too much for you and me just to go through the motions. He wants a relationship with you. So my question for all of us this morning is, how has the gospel changed me? You may be here this morning, you know, you haven't accepted the gospel, you know that. You know that plain as day. The Bible says that God so loved you, he gave his only son. If you would believe in him, you would not perish, but be given eternal life. It does not say you have to have it all figured out. It does not say you have to have all the answers. It does not say you have to have your life all fixed up and working correctly just says you have to believe that God loves you that much and wants you that much in a relationship with him. And then God will do the work in you. If you're here this morning and that's where you are, you need to begin that relationship. I'm standing right here. I'm not holier than thou. I'm a sinner saved by grace just like God wants you to be. I'm just going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. Maybe you're here right now and God has convicted your heart because that's the heart he's wanting to work on in this moment. You have not been living the gospel the way you should be living. It has not impacted your heart, therefore it's not impacting your action. And that's why nobody's asking you about the hope that's in you. 
You need to come before the Father and just repent of that and say you're sorry. I don't know where you are, but now's the time to respond. Ask Jackson to come up and lead us. Let's pray together. Father, in this moment, we ask for your strength. We ask for your courage. We ask for your spirit just to do in us what only it can do. In this moment, we may be bombarded with fear, with worry, with stress, with temptation to be disobedient. Father, your spirit would convict us in such a way that we cannot help but move and to turn to you. Lord, I thank you that in this place, it isn't just about hearing a message. It isn't just about singing songs. It isn't about going through the motions. It's about having an encounter with you who wants to change us. Father, forgive us when we have not allowed that to happen. We've been hard-hearted and strong-willed. But I thank you for your grace and your mercy, your kindness, your faithfulness. I thank you for these that are here this morning and why you wanted to speak to their hearts in this way through this, this word. And I thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do through them for your kingdom and your will. I pray for those who are here this morning that their eyes have been open. They've been going through the motions. They've been playing the game. They've been checking the boxes off. But, Lord, they don't have a relationship with you know about you, but they don't know you. Pray in this moment as Satan wants to keep them where they are, that you just, you push them down the aisle to let it be known that they want you in their lives. For those who are here this morning, that just struggle. Let your peace and love just come upon them. Would you reassure them that the Heavenly Father can. Father, let us now in this moment as we come to a time of response, not just to be hearers of your word, but doers. Forgive me if I've gotten in your way. Thank you for this. You are holy, holy. Praise all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why don't you stand? Why don't you respond?